Hey, welcome back to the Clarinet Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and this is the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. On today's episode, I feature the top five moments of 2019, two of which were decided by the listeners and the Facebook community, two of which were decided by the number of downloads they received, and the last one which I picked myself is probably my favorite learning moment from the year. Now, there were a lot of other great moments, so don't be afraid to head back into the back catalog of the podcast, not only this year, but all the way back to 2016 now. There's over 100 episodes with great artists just like these that you can check out for free at clarinet.com. If you do want to upgrade your podcast experience and get an ad-free extended version of the show and exclusive access to listener question episodes and more, you can do this at clarinet.com slash subscribe for as little as $1 per month. Thanks so much for listening to the program, and thank you so much to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Legere Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand, made right here in Canada. Legere Reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, Corrado Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now, it's your turn. Experience Legere Reads at your local music store or by heading to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. And Coda is a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. It's kind of like Netflix, but for music. Get a free trial today. Just search for Encoda on your device's app store. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. Take your clarinet to the next level with a new mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With free shipping to the United States and Canada, 14-day easy returns, and expert advice, you can be sure that you're making the best choice for your musical needs. After all, the best time to upgrade your clarinet was yesterday, but the second best time is today. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com and save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. All right, so let's get started. The first episode was picked by the listeners as the listener's choice within the Facebook community. If you do want to get access to the community, you can just head to facebook.com and search Clarinet Community, and I will approve your request to join the group. Um, I post little polls like this sometimes and discuss other things about the podcast, so it's a great way to connect with other listeners as well. This episode was no surprise to me as a top one because this person is my favorite to talk to as well, or has been one of my favorites to talk to, I should say, because there's many favorites. But Michael Lowenstern is one of the most inspirational players of our generation, I think. He's done many things and continues to do many things and has one of the most interesting portfolio careers that I can think of in the whole industry. So he shares his thoughts on where someone should get started when it comes to building their own portfolio career. It really depends where you live. Um, you know, if you're in a bigger city like Chicago or L.A. or Seattle or New York, um, there are a, a lot more opportunities that exist. There are a lot more places for you to play. There are a lot more people that you can meet and play with. That determines the size of your portfolio. But let's say that, you know, you graduate from a school in North Carolina and you're in, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina, you're at UNCG. And there you are. You're in this town where there, it's a college town. There's some industry there. There are families there who have kids who want to learn the clarinet. But there's probably a lot more clarinetists per capita in, you know, in Greensboro than there is in New York. And so the, the issue that you have is do you want to – first question you have is do you want to stay in Greensboro? Uh, or do you want to go to a place where there's a little bit more headroom, if you will? Uh, I decided when I moved to New York that I wanted to go to a place where the, the headroom was the highest, 
right? So um, I probably would never get as high as I wanted to get. So that, you know, that's the scariest part. But if you look at it in a positive way, there are a lot fewer clarinet players per capita. So if I wanted to teach, there would be a lot more opportunity for me to find students who are interested in playing, say, the clarinet or the bass clarinet in a city that's big. There's just more people. It's just simple population. So uh, well, the first thing I would think about is where do you want to land? Because if you, if you set yourself up in Greensboro or Austin, which is bigger, obviously, than Greensboro, you are, you're limiting yourself just by the size of the environment in which you're living. You will have to travel a lot more to make that portfolio work for yourself. So think carefully about where you want to land. Once you're there, you want to think about who, what kinds of people you need to meet in order to start playing. And for that, you need to go see a lot of other people play. And you need to hang out afterwards. And you just need to be cool, right? You don't go up and say, hey, I'm new in town. Here's my card. And I'm looking for gigs. And can you help me out? And that doesn't work. You just go and just be cool. And go see a lot of stuff and have a beer and meet people. And you'll get you know, some crappy little gig here or there. And by crappy, I just mean small in a small place. And some of those people that you've gone to go visit, that's when you contact them and invite them. And you can either invite them to come hear you, and they probably won't, but that's okay. Or you can invite them to come and play with you. And that's an opportunity for you to hand out a gig to someone. Even if it is a nothing gig, it means a lot. And they have an investment in you at that point. So finding people to play with and inviting them to play with you by going and hearing them. At that point, you're starting to build a network. So you've got your network of maybe students that you want to teach. You have your network of people that you want to play with. And, you know, at that point, you're on your way. Um, and then it's a matter of time. And there was this longstanding phrase that people used to say, when you get to New York, it takes seven years for you to land and be successful. And that's still pretty much accurate. It takes about seven years here. It seems like a long time, but if you think about it, it's really not that long. And if you can survive for that long, if you're here for a decade, you're pretty much, you're set and you're still growing. And so uh, I just encourage people, it's, <laughs> there's so much instant gratification that people have an expectation of. Uh, not everybody, but a lot, that you need to understand that just sort of the, the rules of economics haven't changed just because uh, the world has evolved. It still takes a while. It takes networking. It takes human-to-human -human contact, and it takes time. To hear the rest of what Michael had to say, it was a great episode of the podcast, but it was episode 113, which you can find at clarinet.com slash 113. Now, Michael was talking a lot about marketing and networking, but also that things take time, and these are all super valuable. If you want to focus on the networking part of things, it's great to attend events like Clarinet Fest, which I'll be at this summer, or last year there was something called Clarinet Celebration, which was hosted by Chamber Music Northwest, and it was under the direction of David Schifrin. Now, David Schifrin was the runner-up episode for Listener's Choice, and he came on the podcast and talked about a multitude of really interesting things, everything from why he switched to Legere Reads and finds them musically viable. Uh, all the way to how to plan a recital program, which is the portion of the episode which I chose to feature here because I just love the way he described this. He, he explained how he helps his students pick repertoire that's not only engaging for them, but also to their audience. So before we go, I really would be remiss if I didn't talk to you a little bit about your creative programming, which is something that you're, you're very well known for. Um, what are some considerations that you put into planning a recital there are so many considerations, uh, how much time there'll be to prepare, who I'll be playing with, and who I'll be playing for. I, I program more than 100 concerts in any given year, uh, 
sometimes because of the the programming for Chamber Music Northwest, which has dozens of, of events every year that I program in, and you know many of them don't, have, don't even have anything to do with the clarinet or recitals. And uh, the the student recitals that I deal with, uh, helping my students select works. And so there are different criteria for programming. But when I just schedule a uh, recital for myself, I, I try to play the, the repertoire that I love, that I've grown up with, and that, again, are the core works of the repertory. And, you know, in selecting the uh, competition repertoire, uh, I've chosen those works, Debussy, Stravinsky, the Brahms sonatas, and of course Mozart, not recital pieces. But um, when I program recitals, I always try to cycle those works and, and, and combine them with, with new pieces, commissioned works, pieces that I am trying to learn that, that are not often played, but, you know, to do, an, to do a mixture of those and, and to sometimes play transcriptions, and uh, try to discover what works and what doesn't, <laughs> trial and error, but to mix it with, with things that I know are genuine masterpieces of the repertoire. I don't know how else to describe that because there's so many, there's so many factors involved. Absolutely. I love the consideration for the audience, though. I mean, a lot of people just sort of put together a you know, this will be a night of music written in the last week that nobody knows and is very obscure. But you're you're really considering, you know, not only what do people know, what do they expect, but also how to push the boundaries a little bit. Sure. And, and uh, you know, as a player, each performer, has, if you're programming for yourself, you want to put your best foot forward and, and choose repertoire that you know will represent your abilities. The advice, actually, the direction that I give to my students when they when they prepare degree recitals is to play something that that you've played many times before and do it better. To play something that you've worked on but never performed, get it to the performance level, and to choose something that you've never studied. So to have those three different levels of of, um, of work for for an advanced student something that you're totally comfortable with that you're going to try to even get to another level. Something that you've worked on extensively but have never had the experience of performing and something that you have never touched before that you're going to learn from, from, from the ground up. I love that. It's uh, founding true artistry, I think. That's great. To hear more of what David had to say, head to clinic.com slash 104. It's episode 104 of the podcast, of course. I'm sure you've noticed the pattern already. Now, the next episode to be featured was actually the most downloaded of the year, and this honestly came as no surprise. This artist is not only one of the biggest clarinetists of our time, he was the longest serving ever in an orchestra, I believe, and he actually won a Guinness World Record, which we did talk about on this episode of the show. But this episode was also featured in an article on Slip Disc, which is like, the classical music's main online resource for news. So a lot of traffic was generated from that. This is Stanley Drucker answering a listener question on how to deal with music when you feel like you're just kind of stuck in a rut. 
So I'm going to skip back to a question from Erin O. She says, I would like to know if there was ever a time in your life where you felt that you were in a rut and not growing at all musically. And if so, how you got out of it. And if not, what would be your advice for someone struggling in that situation? Well, uh, your, your musicians or any artists, I think we're, all, we're emotional people and we have our highs and lows. You know, so there are frustra- frustrations. You know, you opened couple of boxes of reeds and didn't find one that could satisfy you or, or fix one to make it satisfy you. Uh, there were times when when uh, the schedule was very heavy and there wasn't a free day for God knows how many weeks. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of uh, tension uh, where certain works came along that uh, were very difficult uh, and had to be, uh, you know, it had to be done along with the stuff that was uh, familiar and it's an all-consuming situation, uh, it, especially if you're in, in the performing world. You know, uh, there are many moments where, where, where you do get, uh, you know, uptight in a way, I would, I would assume. Uh, the, the, the main thing is, is consistency and, and, and having a, a, your eye on the ball. I've had some exciting moments, I must say, uh, uh, where I had to jump in at the last minute uh, when I with stuff I hadn't even played yet, you know, uh, uh, playing for a sick colleague sometimes or or a soloist that didn't show up and, and had to do a concerto and things like that. There were moments like this. That sounds terrifying, doing a concerto just cold like that? There, there was this, you know, the four we play four concerts a week, and at the fourth concert, this famous uh, this singer, uh, uh, Jesse Norman, uh, got, got the flu and... Uh, and when I got to the hall, uh, I got there was a message to call uh, the to call the manager, and uh, and he said the the, uh, uh, the uh, Jesse Norman is sick, and uh, and uh, Zubin asked if he would play the Mozart concerto, and this was an hour before the concert, and of course no chance to uh, to to rehearse or anything, but uh, I mean things like that. I I jumped in once for a colleague that. Uh, it wasn't there when when I was uh, supposed to be off that piece. It, it was uh, the violin concerto of Shostakovich, and uh, it's it's quite a part. And I hadn't played the, the piece in many years. And I had to jump in on that. I had to jump in on a on another on a modern work once. Uh, uh, jumping in is there's no time to get nervous. That's the whole point. You, you just jump in, and uh, and and let it roll. I was just about to ask how you don't get nervous in those moments, but I guess you just focus on the goal and... Well, there's no time to get nervous in a certain way. You know, it's if you're hanging around waiting for something, maybe. Uh, I would say I've had a lot of high points, you know, uh, waiting to go out and play that Corleano concerto the very first time. That was a... That was an exciting moment for me because it starts with a with a zillion notes, you know, and uh, and coming out of out of the ether, at a very soft situation. I, I would say I found out I had pretty good nerves uh, anyway, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to what extent though do you think that's a level of preparation, and and to what extent do you think that it's sort of just your nature? Well, the thing is, you know, when you play every day you're you're in a groove if you have to play many concerts or many rehearsals and you play every day it's a big help it's probably harder if you if you lay off and you're playing one concert a month or something you know 
Yeah, no, it's, and that's what's hard I find about being a sub locally is I'll sometimes get a call and, and you're expected to just drop in and, uh, and go. And that's very hard. Right. And, and, you know, it's also, it, I, I think it's important to play a lot of, a lot of uh, chamber music is very important to play because there you're actually, uh, you're playing with small groups where, where you, everybody has their input, you know, and uh, that's, that's important. It's also important to play recitals if you can and, and, to, and to have people hear you and review you because it's very easy to, uh, uh, to do a lot of playing where, where nobody says a word about what you did. You know, it's, it's important to, to be heard and to be, uh, to be critiqued. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important, too, to get critiques from people that you you don't know. I mean, there's a podcast coach that I know, and he tells you that he's going to be such valuable feedback because he's not your mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a lot of fine players that, that never do that. In, in the old days, before my time, very there were very few clarinet recitalists, per se, you know, and certainly fewer recordings. Uh, you said people would say this player is great, and it probably was, but nobody ever heard them. Uh, they were they were in a, in a small city, or they were where they never went out on a small stage to play where somebody could write about it. That was, of course, Stanley Drucker on episode 106 of the Clarinet Podcast. You can find it at clarinet.com slash 106. Now, it's worth noting that there's another episode with Stanley coming out real soon. And this was not my first, but actually my third chance to talk with Stanley. So that's been not only a, a dream come true for me, but, but really for something that I never would have imagined to happen once, but let alone three times. So thank you so much for Jerry Bunky from Digital Force for making that happen. You can still purchase signed copies of the Drucker CD set at digitalforce.com. So this next episode was the second most downloaded, and it was actually only 10 downloads shy from being the top. So both of these two episodes were almost equally downloaded throughout the year, which is just amazing. So I think one reason this episode was so popular is because it covered a really relevant topic, and that is the closure of Zinner. Last year, the clarinet world learned that Zinner, which was a common mouthpiece blank manufacturer for many, many companies, um, had closed its doors. So this meant that the blanks which had been used to create mouthpieces for pretty much the last, I'd say, 20 years or so, um, they just no longer existed suddenly. Now, we're at a point where technology has gotten to the place where with 3D printing and CNC manufacturing, companies are really starting to innovate in new and exciting ways. And so this is Richard Hawkins talking about what it was like building a new mouthpiece from the ground up and collaborating with Bakun Musical Services. Don't forget that you can get 10% off your next Bakun accessory purchase with code Clarnet at bakunmusical.com. Well, as many of you know, or maybe you don't know, last uh, June, um, I mean, I, I did actually bring the Zinners to North America in 1992, I believe it was, or 93, and uh, I discovered them. I was on a tour with Sabina Meyer and Eddie Daniels in the Trio Clairon uh, back in those days, and we were doing a concert in... Hanover, Germany, and I went to this little music store and I discovered Zinner. And they had saxophone mouthpieces and there were some German clarinet mouthpieces and and I was like, wow, this stuff is really high quality. And so that's when I discovered uh, that they wanted to, you know, I, I contacted them and we started developing uh, a French mouthpiece. And, and uh, so unfortunately, after all these years of, of, of um, working with them, they decided to retire and, and uh, the, um, uh, the door was closed on June 30th. So 
at that point, I was trying to discover um, various other possibilities for myself. And I even considered not doing it anymore. I just didn't, you know, I, I really love Zinner. I really love the materials. And um, I don't know, I just uh, really didn't want to go do it anymore. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't know, we started talking about it with uh, Maury and Bakun and, and and Joel and, and Jeremy Bakun. And we started thinking, well, let's, let's see if we can do something ourselves. And so we started investigating things. And, and um, to that end, I think we have come up with something really brilliant. So I'm very excited about it. Well, of course, these inner blanks had been sort of a mainstay for the clarinet community all over the world for so long now. David Bissell asks, what material will the new mouthpiece use and how will it be made? So we are actually, um, you know, sort of combining vintage uh, materials with modern technology. And um, we are going back and, and making things from uh, solid rod rubber uh, instead of injection molding. And, uh, and then we're using machines that are uh, nine axis machines that really imitate the handwork that I've been able to do all these years. It's kind of remarkable uh, what technology can do for us now. And uh, throughout the process, I have to say that one of the other things that has been just absolutely a dream of mine is being able to uh, make some design choices and then having something, uh, having something 3D printed within an hour that I can try and then to the micron and then being able to adjust something else to the micron and have it printed out and an hour later on a 3D printer, I've been able to come up with something that I could never have done with Zinners because the injection molding was is, uh, uh, just a very different kind of process. So that's interesting insight. Some of the testing was done with 3D printed models? Almost all of the testing was done with 3, 3D printing, yeah. Um, because it was so accurate that we could really, um, uh, we, I could really tell the difference when, when I would change one little degree um, between one mouthpiece to the, to, the, to the next. So if the 3D printing was so accurate, I don't want to go totally off the rails here, but why not continue with the 3D printing? Is the rod rubber a better material or, or what was, how was that decision made? You know, I think there's, uh, there's no limit to materials in today's world. Um, and I think there's still things to discover in that way. Um, I think rod rubber is something that still resonates in a way that we all are very used to and, and very comfortable with in, in the qualities of sound for the clarinet. But I, I certainly think that there are possibilities down the road for 3D printing and or whatever else that comes down the line for us. What do you say to those people who might feel that sort of the age of handcrafted mouthpieces is over and that we're sort of entering a new technological age? Do you feel it furthers the artistry or it's something's kind of lost or where do you, how do you feel about that? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think it'll ever go away. I think there's always going to be people that are in, in, in doing this and, and certainly, you know, as far as uh, being a craftsman all these years, um, you know, like if I, as a, as a, as a little side story, I remember when I first started with Zinner and this guy named Larry Combs came to my basement at Interlochen and I was freaked out, of course, because I was like 23 and here's Larry Combs coming to stay in my house, you know, wow. and, and, uh, I put out 10 mouthpieces for him and he went through all 10 and he said, okay, I'll take this one. 
and that's what he played on for like 15 years wow. <laughs> you know and and so there there's always that right there's always this the more choices you have that you, you could find something that works for you um yeah of course you have craftsmen that can adjust things for everyone and i think that will always continue because um, there is some magic there is definitely a magic when you're doing things by hand um uh, but you know, I wanted to be able to get something out into the to the public in, in a bigger way, rather than having to adjust things all the time. And I've been doing it since I was in high school, so you know, I need more time to practice. As you get older, you get you get worse, so you got to practice. <laughs> well, yeah, and I wonder too if the new technology is actually kind of like a fulcrum, and then you can leverage the artistic um, efforts even further. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's really so close that I. I've been, been able to take things off of the machine and play them more than anything I've ever ex experienced before. So I, I'm like, I'm still kind of in shock and dumbfounded by the whole process, but it's been really, really fun. Of course, that was Richard Hawkins on episode 110 of the podcast, which you can find at clarinet.com slash 110. He talked about having fun, and that is something super important, and I've been having a lot of fun making content that's a little more lighthearted on the YouTube channel for Claire Neat. So if you're interested, check out youtube.com slash Claire Neat, and I think you will be interested no matter what, because there's a Bakun mystery box I'll be giving away when we reach 10,000 subscribers and unboxing it at 2,500 subscribers. I had a peek of what's in there, and trust me, it's something really cool, and you'll definitely want a chance to win. The last episode I chose to feature today was one that I really felt that I learned something from. Keenan Azme talked about success and what it means to him and what it could mean for you and, and how it might not be what you sort of think it means. So I'll let him have the final word, but thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And I do hope that you'll join me for more upcoming episodes in the coming weeks. There's some from Michelle Anderson, Stanley Drucker returns on the podcast, Stephen P. Brown returns to talk about music business and much, much more on the way. So let's get on to the clarinet and, and some of the, the music that you've been playing, of course. Um, you're very successful in multiple genres. And I sort of wanted to just ask how, like what kind of advice you would have as far as playing multiple styles of music and becoming comfortable and broadening one's mind. I know a lot of people, myself included, they tend to get very fixated on what they do and it's, it's difficult to stretch beyond that. So I guess any and all feedback or advice you'd have about that very broad question. Uh... The question also invites uh, me intervening a little bit because you use the word successful. And I don't know what that means, uh, really, to be honest. I think many of us, you know, in the music world, we're obsessed about being successful. And for me, really, the, the idea of success is if you're managing to play what you like to play, number one. Uh, and then if you're able to be genuine and honest presenting what you're presenting. This is for me the definition of success is when you feel content in the moment you're holding your instrument and playing or the moment you're, you know, having a pen and a music paper and writing a new piece. I would like to redefine the word success in that way. It's not it's not like playing Carnegie Hall and playing Royal Albert Hall in London. I don't think that's the only success possible. I think success has should have a much wider, uh, much broader sense because the possibilities are really unlimited. In terms of uh, what kind of advice I give, let me give you a little bit of a, of a historical background of what, what was the moment that convinced me that I should really widen my spectrum of the music that I like. I was in Damascus. This is maybe six or seven years after I started learning, learning the clarinet. My parents came back from a trip to Hungary 
and they brought me two LPs. One LP was, uh, I think Mozart, Weber, and maybe and Rossini, uh, Introduction, Theme, and Variations, and Mozart Concerto, and maybe Weber Concertino, uh, performed by Bela Kovac. And it was a wonderful LP, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, I heard it like a million times. But also, they gave me another LP by this crazy clarinetist, and I mean crazy in the most positive sense of the word, uh, called Erno Kalaikis, who's a gypsy Hungarian clarinetist. And I used to play these two LPs back to back. It drove me crazy, is the realization that this is the same instrument. And this is exactly the same instrument. It uses the same, like you use it the same way. You can create a total different sound and you can use this music in a total different genre. And my fascination became even bigger when I started to listen to Benny Goodman a few years later, because that also gave me a total different perspective. So the clarinet by, by default, or maybe by chance, or maybe both, uh, lends itself quite easily for a variety of, genre, of genres. Uh, it already has a historical background in a variety of genres. So for me, trying to play things beyond the standard repertoire is a no-brainer, actually. Because uh, if you look at the clarinet worldwide, there are certainly more things than only Western European tradition. There are my, by far uh, more variety of things. And I'm somebody who's curious by nature. And I love to, to try to explore all these different musical vocabularies. And that's what I invite everybody to do. Uh, of course, I ask people always to try to uh, reach out horizontally you know, I think we do this in our, our lives by default, you know, when we try different cuisines uh, and we listen to different musics, but also performing different music, I think is very important. And in that, when you get to something you like, I think that's when you have to start to dig vertically to really spend a lot of time trying to learn, let's say, uh, the clarinet in, in, uh, in Turkish music or, or the clarinet of the Balkans or how they use the clarinet in some parts of India. I think only then can you really get closer to the source. In the Western uh, kind of music education, we spend many, many years learning a repertoire. And I think you need to have double amount of that time to be able to uh, to master another tradition too. But I think it's really, it's so, uh, super exciting for me. Uh, so I cannot turn a blind eye to any tradition that I know exists and a tradition that I enjoy listening to. So I think sort of what you're saying is that the, the multiple histories of the clarinet, although they seem to be sort of widespread and somewhat separate to a classical player or a jazz player exclusively, these are actually sort of one and the same. That's the history of the instrument. I think so. I think so. You know, I don't believe in like geographical borders when it comes to, to art making. Uh, I don't think there is a, like a line, a very specific line that divides east from the west or north from the south. Uh, music is a continuum by default. And I think uh, different traditions, yes, there are different vocabularies and different traditions. But I think a good performer should only not only master one vocabulary, I think you should master the philosophies of different vocabularies and how you can learn a variety of ways to play one thing. The biggest advice that I give uh, students that I work with in, in the various master classes I give is every, it's not enough to be a performer. You have to be a composer. You have to be an improviser. Uh, and because I also don't see where the limits are between the improviser, the composer, and the performer. 
What a great episode. I was just blown away by pretty much everything he had to say. It was actually the first episode that I recorded in my new house, and it was sort of the start of the new era of the podcast for me. So that was Keenan Osme from episode 118, which of course you can find at clarinet.com slash 118. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thank you especially to our sponsors for making the show possible. We've got Encoda, which is kind of like a Spotify for sheet music. You can check them out and get a free trial at encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A dot com. The show is also brought to you by Bakun Musical Services, and you can get 10% off your next accessory purchase with the code ClaireNeat at BakunMusical.com. That's valid, of course, for the popular vocalese mouthpiece that Richard Hawkins was talking about in today's episode. Also, barrels, bells, care kits, and all sorts of other accessories on their website. And lastly, our newest sponsor is Legere Reads. I'm super happy to have these guys in the show. They are a Canadian company, just like Bakun is, and I've been playing them since way back in like 1999 or 2000, whenever I was in marching band. And they were just the perfect product back then, but they're even better now because they've just come such a long way. They don't warp, they last a lot longer than normal reads, and they're just a real joy to play from day to day. One of my favorite uses for them actually is teaching because you set your clarinet down for 20 or 30 minutes and pick it up again and just have to go and the read's always ready. So check them out at your local music store or at legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Thanks so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.